Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. Yeah, so for this episode, I'm thinking that we can just do um, a, uh, like I said, uh, it's kind of selfish because I've been reading a, a lot recently, but I haven't been reading uh, the commie, I haven't reread the Communist Manifesto. Wow. So I'll probably reread that over this week. Um, okay. And then we'll, yeah, do we an ep- we'll do an episode on that. But I just wanted to talk about um, general, like what we've been reading and um mm-hmm philosophy recently and stuff too that 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 i've been reading and that you've been reading so i'm i'm interested i have this like long drawn out um explanation about like this philosophy that i've been reading so i'm gonna i'll tell you what i'm gonna tell you like one thing that i've read recently that i can recommend to people um listening and then after we can just we can just bounce back and forth off of that i mean we can I mean, we could we could have a, a good conversation just off of some, you know, pretty pretty essential ideas. I think if you just talked about what you've been reading and like why people should read it and what it means for like the philosophy realm or what it what it why it's connected with you or maybe why you think other people should read it and should maybe you know it just we'll we'll branch out like we always do and just kind of tie things together. Yeah. So, um, well, first off, before I get into like the in-depth discussion of like, uh, that, you know, when you Mm -hmm. read something and you have to like immediately talk to somebody about it, you're like, I got to talk to somebody about that. That's kind of what happened over this, this week. So before I get, before I get too in the weeds to, for that, I will say that I ushered in this year with finishing a book on the, on the first, actually on new year's. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was called, uh, whatever, by Michelle Huelebeck and it's a uh it's a Anna Katchian from Red Scare uh essential like she has her own canon mm-hmm. right you know so she talks about like reading Christopher Lash and she talks about Camille Paglia and stuff but she also talks about this this fiction writer she says the fiction that she reads is kind of just like she only reads this guy called Huelebeck he's this uh mm-hmm. French novelist who's kind of more he writes in a more um uh philosophical type style where he he interjects a lot of his own thoughts into his writing and um a lot of his writing is kind of like the reason i wanted to bring it up is because it's kind of like um murakami in the sense that uh it deals with like the modern malaise of like contemporary culture so before Mm -hmm. yeah before we get into the philosophical systems and stuff like the the real in-depth shit because let me let me forewarn you i've been reading heigl so um yeah, okay. I uh, I just wanted to to touch on that and tell everyone that they should check it out. It's his first book. It's uh, uh called Whatever. Um, it's very short. It's like a day or two read. So yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, like, what are are you gonna tell us what it's about, or are you just are we gonna like just kind of dive into? So that's what you read, and uh, I mean, I'll get into what I read in a second. But like, is that do you do you want to go off of why? Uh, why do, I mean, why did you read it or why should somebody read it? Um, I think people should read it if you're interested in like um, um, fiction that's more thought like not necessarily thought provoking, but um, more like in depth in terms of like the writer has a specific thing in mind when he's writing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I'll just tell you, it's about a guy who is, he's like 30, he's like late twenties, early thirties. And he's kind of, he works in this, um, this tech company. He's like a computer guy and he's like, it's like the early nineties. So he's like fed mm-hmm. up with it. And it has to deal with like his, like depression and alienation and, and like his feelings of inadequacy and, 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 uh, all that stuff. So yeah, that, that's, um, it was a good book. It was a fast read. So that's why I, uh, I'd recommend it. Okay. So what have you been reading? Uh, well, we just, because we wrapped up capital, um, when you, when we were talking about capital, I think we were talking about the reading, the organization of it. Uh, your the mention of Althuse, uh, um, that was honestly that was the first time I'd ever heard that name mentioned, mm-hmm. and I just didn't ask right off the bat because like I feel like I had seen it before, and like it took me a while to find it because I didn't know the guy was French and I didn't know it was spelled S S E R, and so I was like I'm looking for this guy that read Marx or he read Capital and he actually wrote about reading Capital. And I was like, but I can't find him. And like, it turns out I was just spelling his name wrong the whole time. Well, so because you mentioned uh, Althuse that first time, that first episode we did, that's how I found him. And so the only thing I read in the last week was just his, uh, a brief just kind of uh, touch into him reading ca- uh, Capital. And, uh, and so then I did a little bit more research on uh, Althuse in general. Um, you know, who's also <laughs> a, uh, who's also a Marxist and a, uh, a uh, has a lot of similar influences to I think probably you and I. He his his influences are similar to the people that influenced us. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know he was uh, he's a uh, he likes he likes a lot of Mao's work and he read. Uh, uh, I was surprised that he uh, he did some he did some work about uh, Machiavelli, the Prince, uh, which mm-hmm. I have, and I'm I'm going to read the Prince because I remember reading it in high school which I think was kind of dumb because I think in high school I was just a dumb kid. And I was like, I'm just reading this because my teacher told me to, and you know, it's not it, 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 absolutely the, my intellectual growth and journey was nearly as what it was is now. So I'm kind of, you know, a late bloomer in, in, in that sense. So I'm going to go back and read the Prince just because I read an interesting take that uh, Althuse had on it. And um, now I, believe it or not, I don't, I don't remember anything about the Prince other than just like, it's kind of like an outline of, uh, wielding power and, and like the the uh, the principles of what being a a powerful inch worth the like how you should uphold yourself and the principles you should have and then he also kind of goes into like the means to an end like even though the means may not be great but like the ends maybe can be justified by your means and so he he I think he I don't know if he wrote like a I don't think he published anything about it or or uh, has a big piece on it but i just know that he he wrote about that and i'm i'm gonna try to get into that and then um and we were talking about murakami and i saw uh 84 uh is it is it just called 1q84 or is it 1984 because it isn't it it's, it's about called like yeah, yeah, right, it's, yeah it's called 1q84 um it's it's yeah. his uh it's his um dystopian novel and three and it's you know obviously influenced by 1984 mm-hmm. so yeah, it's funny that you you texted me last night and you were like, "Because uh, did you say you had it and then you bought the rest of them?" I remember you texted me last night, but it, I was I think I was intoxicated and I couldn't remember what you said. <laughs> no, yeah, that's that's a perfect that's a perfect yeah. uh, <laughs> excuse. No, um, what I said was uh, I had I realized I didn't realize that I had almost every single Murakami novel. 
Um, I realized I had a lot of them, but I knew he wrote a lot. So I found out that I was only missing three of his novels. And out of all the novels of his that I have, I've only not read one of them. And that's 1Q84, which I I have it. It's It's on my desk right now. But I've yet to read that novel because a couple things. One, it's a big boy. It's a big, oh, yeah. big boy. It's yeah, a, I saw, I saw it in a store. Yeah, yeah, it's massive. Like, um, we, the the edition I saw, uh, which is I think what maybe just the, I don't know how many editions of it there are, but I just saw the the white cover edition uh, paperback, yeah. and it's like it's a monster. I mean, it's almost like a two handed two handed carry. So yeah, um, you yeah, could I, you could yeah, kill a man it. with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I'm gonna try. And I, I mean, it's good to bounce around just so you don't get bored. It's like you don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you don't want to read the same thing over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I kind of, well, I went, I went on the uh, the Marxist archives and I found some, uh, uh, found some good stuff there. That's where I actually got the manifesto on my phone, so I could just be reading it, you know, when, and when I'm killing time or something. Mm. Um, but uh, I haven't. I don't. Maybe I just haven't looked at the right places. But I haven't found any uh, Althusser on the Marxist archives. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Well, um, the Marxist the Marxist archives is um, even though it has like a lot of Marxist writers, it's a lot of early Marxist writers. Because oh, okay. um, Althusser so was like six. The like, biggest thing about yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Mar- the biggest thing about the Marxist archives is that it has. Um, um it has like uh Lenin and, and Marx and Engels and and mm-hmm. uh look I think it might have Luxembourg as well, but it's got a lot of the older Marx like first generation Marxists, but Althusser is kind of in that postmodern um sensibility. So so he mm-hmm. probably he's too he's too new, I guess, for the Marxist archives. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh yeah, so yeah. so Althusser, so what did what did you read that Althusser wrote? You said you read so you've read uh, Reading Capital, or you've read parts of Reading Capital? No, just just bits and pieces of it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't own like if if I can find a PDF of, of something, I can just copy and paste it into my phone or mm-hmm. onto uh, onto my uh, to onto the laptop we have, and I just kind of make like a library of that, so I at least have like a copy of it stored. Um, but no, I haven't. I haven't like thoroughly sat down and digested it or sat down and wanted to you know feed my brain because let's be honest i mean reading philosophy kind of sucks sometimes <laughs> and so uh, at least for me because the problem i have is because i fixate on things so much and mm. my and my personality type is just that whatever i'm feeling in a moment and then what i what i'm doing is also well i mean like because of that, I don't. I try not to read too many things that get me depressed, and I already struggle with uh, finding things that just kind of take my mind off of the fact that I hate most things in the world right now. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So like, so you have to you have to take out your your stupid you know fiction books, your your Brandon Sanderson's or your your Game of Thrones books or whatever it is, and you have to kind of just chill out for a little bit and read those. But um, I mean, that's what I had to do to get through Capital. I mean. It's not like we could sit down and recap in in like a week, you know, and read it every yeah. day for a week. It's just, uh, it's it's you know, iron sharpens iron, and in in reading these books and reading these ideas are really, really, really good for those brain muscles. Um, but mm-hmm. when you start the application process and you start to absorb the information, 
and you start seeing the applic or you start seeing the ideas come before, like almost they happen before your eyes. Like not that these guys are, are prophets, but you, you start to be like, okay, now, now I understand what uh, alienation and estrangement and all these, I, now I know what, I know what it means when somebody says that capitalism is alienating, like I get it. Mm-hmm. And so but when you fully digest an idea like that, and this is just, I guess I'm talking now, I'm now I'm talking about how I interpret philosophy or how it registers in my head. It, it'll, it'll, it's, I, it's almost like taking your brain out and like putting it in the book and then your brain just sucks everything, you know, out of the book. And that's the best metaphor I could use. And it just, it's really, heavy and sad sometimes especially if you're just like depressed which is why i'm actually taking a break from twitter right now because like i was just mm. i'm like i gotta not that i i love my twitter timeline like i i follow some i follow some really good people and i follow some great posters and i've got i've got good posters and i've got the i've got the, the camaraderie and the comedian the comedy in in those guys but i've also got you know i've got my i've got my philosophy guys i've got my guys who read heigl and i've got my guys who you know, are, are putting these ideas out there. And I don't expect people to always do that, but um, I don't know, for some reason this past week on Twitter was really hard for me because I was, I was, I don't, I don't, I don't post a lot, but that doesn't mean I'm not seeing posts. So like I'm more of a reader, you know, and I, I'm, I'm taking in all these ideas and, and uh, you know, it's you, you just, you want to expose yourself to that and then start applying what you see in, in your, your, social experiences with your peers and you want to start applying what you've learned from these philosophers, you know, mm-hmm. the, and just all of that can be too much sometimes. I, and you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I will tell you this, this, uh, as a person who like, um, right. Like kind of, uh, you know, suffers from like, who doesn't suffer from depression and anxiety anymore, but like as a person who definitely like suffers from depression and I, mm-hmm. I absolutely, I love reading philosophy. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's probably like here recently, I've just been reading philosophy. Mm-hmm. And the thing I have to say, though, is that philosophy provides these aha moments, I like to call them, where you're oh, yeah. reading it and suddenly the world clicks into place and you, you can make sense of it. Right. Because like you, mm-hmm. you can as a person who like thinks a lot anyway, who's like very introspective and who's very, you know, um, a person who kind of interprets the world in the way I do, um, I find that philosophy typically will either say something that I've thought about or have said in a better way or confirm something that I've already thought. So there's a lot of like aha moments when reading oh, yeah. philosophy. And those, so, like, moments are, those moments are so worth it too. Like that's, that's why you read it, you know? Right. But, but the thing about it is the, like my whole point in saying all that is that also like as a person, suffers from depression who like you know doesn't have the energy sometimes to like do anything when you read philosophy and you get those aha moments sometimes those aha moments are bad and not mm-hmm. not in that oh shit everything cl- clicks into place and it's b- like it, it, not in the sense that like what the philosopher is saying or what you're saying is bad it's the sense mm-hmm. that this has confirmed my my worldview and the worldview that is current that i'm currently experiencing is shitty so mm-hmm. right. like like i told you i think that people should read um and here's a little plug that i wasn't really going to talk about that much but I'll, I'll do it anyway i think everyone should read uh guy Debord's, it's spelled guy 
but it's, I think it's Guy, Guy Debord's um, Society of the Spectacle. Um, the election, I read that during the election, um, and c- because I saw on Twitter, uh, so Leia actually said, shout, shouts out to our, our one listener, Leia. Uh, <laughs> so she, she said that um, she read that, and then there was another person on the timeline who was like, oh man, like imagine reading Society of the Spectacle right now. And I was like, fuck, all right, like let's do it. So I bought the book and I read it. It's a very mm-hmm. short read. I read it in like maybe two or three days or something. And I have to say that like that was one that was like an aha moment, but it was a very bad aha moment. Like it was a gr- incredible book. I highly recommend if you want to know what's happening in in contemporary culture, you need to read mm. that book like 100%. That should be required reading for everyone to read. But because we were going through the election, we were going through the spectacle of the election, reading Society of the Spectacle and having that aha moment just depressed me even more. But oh, it was yeah. a great book. And I wouldn't trade that. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. So mm. I, I completely understand what you're saying in that you have to break up reading philosophy because when you're reading, if you start reading philosophy or theory or whatever you want to call it, then sometimes those beautiful aha moments, which is why you read philosophy to to sharpen your mind, to to understand the world better, to try to make sense of things. Uh, sometimes you don't like what you see, you know, mm-hmm. uh, around with the world around you. So, yeah, I completely understand that. Right. And, and I mean, we we are. This is a, a a leftist podcast, so like, I mean, maybe it's not clear, but like, most of these guys that we're talking about are like straight up from the school of Marx, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of so that's, that's yeah. going to be where I'm leaning to is a lot of I know that going forward, a lot of the ideas I'm going to see, or and maybe that maybe that was, and I I I'm not saying this it's the right way to do it, but um and you know i think what reading marx who i think i remember seeing this recently or maybe uh maybe you posted uh this was like half a year ago maybe i don't know um but it was like it was a list of like who the 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 most read like uh thought leaders are of the left mm-hmm. and like marx i think marx barely cracked the top 10 yeah you know it's like it's like hold on now like this is this was a guy who is um, as far as I can tell, uh, or before, uh, this is, he was, and I don't like using the term, but like maybe like the grandfather of like, uh, that kind of thought of, of communist thought and like communal thought. Um, Dude, definitely. The thing is like, I, right. I forgot who said it, but someone said it perfectly. They said that like Germans, and I was thinking about this too, in my readings, Germany has produced such great thinkers. Yeah. Um, and it's absolutely insane because like. Um, if you think, if you trace like the history of like philosophy or the history of thought or whatever, um, and you're, you're, you go, you know, of course the enlightenment happens and then you have the, then you have the creation of German idealism. And in fact, I was reading that Heigl, when he first was writing, um, people didn't really, there was a lot of people that didn't respect him. And, uh, there were some people that just said he writes in gibberish, which, in fairness, a lot of his stuff does seem he's either yeah. <laughs> he's either very artful or very gibberishy, right. depending on like depending on your viewpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing about it is that uh, Heigl now is considered 
the completion of like philosophy, right? Oh, like yeah. he's yeah. almost come full circle. Whereas like, uh, and then Kant especially too is, is very, he's a very prolific, very influential Western philosopher. Um, but there's like these big breaks in philosophy that happen with German philosophers. And the fact that like, as a, like the, a communist or a leftist, right. Whatever you want to identify yourself, whether you want to call yourself like post left, or even if you have like some Marxist, like economic tendencies, you know, whatever, um, Marx to, to Marx, not even cracking the top 10 of like top leftist um yeah. writers is ridiculous because marx is another uh, is a huge break in philosophy in fact right. like I, I would say that um and, and as a marxist i can you know kind of like uh say this you know with impunity mm-hmm. but marx is a is a thinker that revolutionized like literally the way we think about things and the fact of the matter is that even like regardless of what you think of like his economic systems or his you know some of his writing or whatever marx is is the is the thinker par excellence that we have to to contend mm-hmm. with right. like he is the quintessential thinker of the left and he's the quintessential even like philosophical thinker um you know that uh, there hasn't been a person that's in my opinion that's topped uh Marx in terms of um how prolific his writing is right um and that's just you know as a person who who has read uh ha- has read Marx um but hasn't read his entire you know um obviously hasn't read his entire uh bibliography i just have to say that like you know even just the communist manifesto and capital by themselves um are hugely influential pieces of um you know pieces of philosophy regardless again regardless of what you think of his his system regardless of what you think like of his his economic policies or his you know um prescriptions of how to fix society he is the Mm -hmm. thinker that you have to kind of reconcile when you either debate him or you try to expand upon his ideas i mean like I said, like if you look at any of these, um, if you look at any of these thinkers that we talk about now in the academy, right? Like whether it be, you know, and I have some pr- problems with some of them, but like these postmodern, like quote unquote post-structuralist thinkers, most of them are are reconciling Marx. You know, you have to, mm-hmm. they have to grapple with him at one point. I mean, even like Foucault, like a person who I personally don't like as a theorist, but. Uh, you know him and, and Derrida and, and Debord and Baudrillard mm-hmm. and all these guys are Marxists. Like they're they say well they claim they're Marxists, but they they reconcile Marx when they talk about their philosophical systems. Right. Um. Well, and you said you are you are you reading Hegel right now too? Like, are you still reading him? Because you you basically started the. We're, we could talk about Hegel for a second, and I remember. I read a little bit. There was something about Heigl I read last year, and it was actually this guy um, who was like this guy who's like super liberal, and he uh, he had read a lot of Heigl, and he was like, um, it's just basically kind of like you know Heigl was onto something, and uh, so I if you want to talk about Heigl, we can talk about Heigl, or maybe we should talk about what a, what what dialect what a dialectician is. You okay, think we should talk um, about that. Yeah, so I actually uh, we can get into what my big rant now because that that's part of it is the the is Heigl. 
Um, so Heigl, um, you know, he is a, uh, he's grouped in with this, um, philosophical, um, system called German idealism, right? So, okay. Let me go back a little bit. I'll go back. I'll come back to Heigl, right? But we're going to put a pin in that right now. So German idealism, remember that. Okay. So before this thought of German idealism came about, there was this, um, there was a school of thought in Western philosophy, right? And everyone knows that you'd learn about it in school. It's called the Enlightenment, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? And those Yes. Persons. So yeah. you have Rousseau, you have Francis Bacon, you have all these people. So what happens is you have these um, like uh, classical liberals, right, who uh-huh. uh, different than liberals today, obviously, who, uh-huh. who, who have this, these different philosophical systems or whatever and what happens is those are they're they're getting developed and then you have this philosopher who i really like and this is like one of the guys that i really want to talk about today which is this guy named david hume have you ever heard of david hume oh yeah i've heard of david hume yeah so hume is uh for those who haven't heard he is a scottish philosopher he is one of england's um you know he lived in england a lot of his life so he's mm-hmm. one of england's foremost philosophers and he is what you call a skeptic right so hume was interesting in that he he had enlightenment ideals because he was writing in like the 1700s right the late 1700s but Mm -hmm. he had these enlightenment ideals and uh but he broke from that in that he didn't um he he didn't necessarily attribute anything to like god right so he was he was what you call um, so, so there's two things. He's an empiricist, right? So he believes in like what you can see, and he's also nice. a, he's a skeptic, right? In that he he um, questions. He he was at the very least in a time that really wasn't popular. He was agnostic at the very mm-hmm. least. He has one of his books that. So besides um, besides Zizek, the book uh, the philosopher who I have the most books for. Well, actually, besides Zizek and Nietzsche the philosopher who I have the most books about is Hume or for by is Hume. Um, and I just recently got into Hume. So, so Hume's philosophical system, he even wrote a whole thing called, um, dialogues concerning natural religion, where he takes apart the argument of, uh, design, right? So intelligent design, like he picks apart like piece by piece in a hundred pages or so. He kind of like dismantles his argument. It's, it's one of the things that, um, a lot of Christian apologists talk about that they have to reconcile Hume because Hume did such a good job dismantling the argument of uh, intelligent design. So long story long, Hume is uh, Hume's philosophical system as a skeptic, as an empiricist, is that he believes are um, so he, he has this uh, this book. It's a great it, it from what I've read so far. I haven't finished it, but uh, he he wrote this book called. Um, Oh, what is it? So there's he, the other famous one. It's uh oh, a treatise of human nature, right? So this is big book, and the most famous line from Hume is that, uh, and I, I constantly think about this. Is he says that um, he says my treatise fell dead born from the press. It wasn't even enough to excite a murmur among the zealots. So he. Mm. 
as a as this guy he he uh he wrote this this treatise of human nature it's just like three volume book it's like 700 pages and uh no one would buy it right and he wasn't he he tried to be an academic but no one would accept him because he was like an atheist so he mm-hmm. was essentially just a philosophical writer and then he wrote this book called an inquiry concerning human understanding and what it what that is is it's it's all of the in the first book of treaties it's his philosophical system just like bare bones and people loved it right so right. hume's system is that he believes that all of our um all of our thoughts are informed by perception so he breaks it down in that we form thoughts through two things right he says through ideas and impressions and ideas are the more solidified form of impressions and we can't have any thoughts besides uh, what we've experienced. So impressions are, um, so, so he, I'll give you two examples of what, and, and these are his examples. So um, the two examples he uses is that um, fire, right? So we've, as, as humans, we've experienced, if we haven't experienced heat or things that are hot, we've experienced things that hurt, right? We know that heat hurts us to a right. certain extent. So that's an impression that we have. Well, our idea is that fire is hot. So therefore, if we touch fire, it will hurt and hurting is bad. So we won't touch fire. So, yeah. so it makes sense in that, in that sense that he, he uses that. And then he also, but what's, what's really interesting is he breaks from that. And he says that not only can we not, is all of our, um, thoughts derived from ideas which are derived from impressions but that uh in fact there's no empirical basis for knowledge a priori right so so a priori meaning um uh, it's kind of a confusing term but it means that that like you can logic your way to a thing so uh without having any prior like uh, knowledge of it so for instance it it literally means just like logic like just using logic logic to logic and reason yeah yeah right. to yeah exactly to get to your conclusion right mm-hmm. um so hume doesn't believe in a prior knowledge at all what he believes is that uh, he talks about billiards right like uh like pool like pool yeah and he says that um we have the idea and the impression that if you hit a ball into another ball, the ball will shoot off that other ball and like go in the direction that we hit it. Right. Yeah. But, but Hume says that there's no way that we could know that until the, the thing actually occurs. There's no like 100% knowing. So right. When you hit a ball into a ball, he said, honestly, it could defy all natures of physics and start flying around the room. So, yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah, so Hume's interesting in that regard. So ironically, so we're going to, I'm, I'm getting back to Heigl. Sorry, it's taking so long, but I love my man's Hume. <laughs> so, so Hume influenced Kant, right? To write right. his book. I hate Kant. <laughs> That's why I like Hume is I hate Kant. <laughs> so, so Kant is the anti Hume. So, so Kant writes his critique 
of pure reason, which is where you get the categorical imperative. It's one of the most important books in Western philosophy as a rebuttal to Hume because Kant believes that you can have a priori knowledge that is synthetic a priori knowledge, right? That isn't organic a priori knowledge, but it's synthetic. So we can formulate thoughts and logic a priori um, without having to experience it. And, and this also comes from, from Kant being, he's a very religious guy, right? So, mm-hmm. so a lot of this is formulated from Kant being uh, 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 religious and that he's trying to, you know, talk about morals, how morals are, you know, like he talks about the, the in, in, critique of pure reasoning talks about like the categorical imperative. And that's, that's the main reason I don't like Kant is I don't agree with that. Um, and and I'll, I'll just give a brief rundown of that just really quickly. And then we'll get it on to Heigl. Uh, the categorical imperative is saying that morals are universal. Um, and that, so for instance, if, uh, so, so we all know lying is bad, right? So if you tell yeah. a loved one, you if you if you go up to uh your sister and and, uh you actually hate her but you say oh i love you right Mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a it's a net bad thing according to according to kant well kant says that that morals are universal they're categorically imperative in that they apply to everything so lying is bad in everything so let's say you have a friend over right let's say austin james comes over to uh matt's house right and he's like yo i want to hang out whatever i'm like cool so you're chilling and then a hitman knocks on the door and you're like oh shit matt i forgot to tell you uh this hitman's coming after me he's gonna kill me because (laughs) someone doesn't like me so i say okay great and then you hide and i open the door and the hitman says hey is austin here uh According to Kant, because lying is a net bad, I'm supposed to say, and this is actually a a, um, thing that he uses too, so I'm not like just pulling this out of my ass. I'm supposed to say, yeah, Austin's in the kitchen. Because because even though he's going to kill you, I don't have any control over his actions. I only have control over my actions. So lying in that sense is me doing bad to him. Whereas if he were to find and kill you, it's not because of me, it's because of him. Right. Right. So completely disagree with that. Right. Uh, Obviously, Uh, I think Kant's categorical imperative is stupid, but this is why I I tied all this in. So Kant is the anti Hume. Right. So I I, I found this like interesting, like this interesting um, link from Hume to Marx. And we'll get to it as soon as I do. So Hume writing Kant writes against Hume. Well, then Heigl, what he does is that he's part of that German idealist um, thing that kind of starts with Kant. So Heigl is is kind. He's Kantian almost in a sense that he doesn't believe in the categorical imperative, but he believes that you can have synthetic a priori knowledge. So Heigl, what happens is my man writes uh, the history of philosophy, right? This uh, lecture series. Mm-hmm. And he, he has a very short section of Hume. And he says that Hume, the only reason Hume is popular is because Kant was so against him. Like Thanks. that's, yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, okay. So, so long story, all this to say is that Heigl 
um, he creates. So, so he doesn't create it. So dialectics is a is a term that was used uh, in in ancient mm-hmm. Greece and ancient like dialectic just meant like a discussion, right? So a dialectic was if I'm talking to you currently, then you talk to me and we talk to we talk about an idea until we reach a conclusion together. So that's mm-hmm. what a regular dialectic is. Right. Now a, a Hegelian dialectic is completely it isn't completely different, but it's the sense that things have a they're triparted, right? So Hegel gets this idea from Fichte originally, and then Schelling. So where we get that term, and you see this memed all the time. It's like thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. We get that Hegel never says any of those terms. In fact, he decries those terms. We get that from Schelling, right? Who takes Fichte's dialectic and expands upon it. So Hegelian dialectic is more, it's better to say that it's being, nothingness, and becoming. So in objects themselves, in humans and objects and everything, they're all like a dialectical thinking is is negating the negation, according to Hegel, right? So in every single thing, there is being, and then there is an Mm -hmm. absence of being, which is nothing, right? So when you negate the negation, when you negate the nothing, that being is realized in becoming. So dialectical thinking is essentially working through the best way I can describe it is it's working through contradictions, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's synthesis and antithesis. Right. So, so Heigl, I always tell people cause, cause people who are like Hegelians will like mm-hmm. constantly bitch about the synthesis antithesis stuff. I actually, I, I think that's actually a pretty good way of thinking about it. Um, mm-hmm. Even though Heigl decries it himself, I it, I think it's I, I call it baby's first way of thinking about it because because Hegel it, it, it's it's a useful it's a useful thought to say okay there are things like if I posit something as a thought and then I'm trying to work through that I have to reconcile that thought's contradiction its inherent contradiction in itself so that way I can arrive to something that takes into account its contradiction. So so I do believe that saying, hey, thesis, antithesis, synthesis is um is fine, right? Um and that that's typically so that's that's the Hegelian dialectic, right? So right. so brief overview of that. But now we're gonna get into and this is what I was saying, I was like reading Hume and I was reading Heigel and I said, oh my God. I was like, hold on a minute. Let me look this up. And I just typed in the computer machine. I said, uh, dialectical materialism, right? Marxist dialectics. What's the difference between a Marxist dialectic and a Hegelian dialectic? And fuck me in the ass and call me a bitch. Marx was a human, like a humanist, like as a humanist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So... Marx believes in material reality versus 
Hegel's belief. So when Marx creates dialectical materialism, he takes the Hegelian method, right, of dialectics, of working through contradictions. And he said, wait a minute. No, it's not this far flung metaphysical religious thing that Hegel says dialectics is. Dialectics is actually the world ha- having its own contradictions and working on us as subjects. So, mm. so Hegel's dialectics, so think about this as different movements. So in Hegelian dialectics, it's a person who interprets the world, right? And then re like, so, so it's like a, if you, if you think of a, let's think of a human, Right. Let's let's think of a human outline. I wish I could show this on like a whiteboard or something. So it's like a person staring at some shoes, right? Right. Okay. And then there's the person comprehending those shoes, and then it coming back to the person. That's a Hegelian dialectic, right there. Yeah. Oh, um, oh is that is that a shoe? Yes, those are shoes. And then boom. Yeah, that's like you know, it's like yeah, is that shoes. What you're yeah, which right. shoes are those? Those are the red yeah. shoes. Okay, but I have two two pairs of red shoes. No, those are the red shoes that are Adidas, right? right. That's Hegelian dialectic, working through a contradiction like outside of oneself, right? So going from Geist, spirit, consciousness, whatever you want to say, going from that to the outside world and coming back with the interpretation. Now, Marxist dialectics, dialectical materialism, is taking the material world as basis and talking about how the material world is interpreted through a person. So for a Marxist, right, which I am, right? So so mm. for me, I think that that class, right, my my economic conditions, right, my my material conditions if you will. Um they aff- in- yeah, they affect your dialectics. Right. They they in, they affect my thought insofar as my thought process is informed by my material conditions. Yep. So instead of instead of your thought process being the beginning and being the end process of a dialectic, uh, a Marxist dialectic believes no, you're actually shaped by your world to quite an extent. In fact. Your your entire thought process is shaped by your your material conditions. Yeah, exactly. um, and, and I I want to and I think of this every time. But like um, when I think about, uh, it's easy to apply this to a lot of things that I think about uh, Marx's uh, dialectical materialism, because like and I always think about these um, these uh, Soviet era paintings. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen them before, but like this, I couldn't remember, God, I can't remember the artist. I always, remember the, I always forget the artist's name, but this artist, uh, depicted the, uh, uh the, the revolution, uh, you know, against uh, the Bolshevik revolution and, uh, all, all that, that time period. And it's a, it's a soldier who's like standing, uh, in, it's like a, it's a, it's a, uh, a comrade who's standing in this giant hall of like these uh, the nobles of Russia, these kings and queens of Russia, and mm-hmm. he's looking around like this is like this is absolutely out of this world, you know. And so like he his 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 arrival to that conclusion, his thought was like this is absolutely insane that a person 
lives in this. And then the person who lives in that, their material condition is like, this is just my house, <laughs> you know? You yeah. Know? It's like, yeah, exactly. And I always think about that because that, that's what I always, uh, when I think about dialectical materialism, I use that example to explain it to somebody. Right. Yeah. I think that's actually a great example, Austin, is that yeah. the per- for, for the person who lives in the palace, that person, that palace is nothing. It's, it's, it's home, yeah. but they expect, you know, so much. Whereas the person who has nothing sees the palace and it's like, well, what the fuck? Like I'm living yeah. in, I'm living yeah. in pig shit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so all of this is to say, and this is why I really wanted to just talk about philosophy on this, this podcast today is that Marx is a, a admirer of Hume in that mm. regard. Wow. So, so Marx is a Hegelian insofar as he's a Hume humist. So, <laughs> right. Okay. So yeah, now it's registering with me and I'm like, hold on. <laughs> so, so Hume talks about the, the, the fact that you can't necessarily have knowledge a priori, right? Through logic, you have to have experience. And then Marx takes the Hegelian dialectic, turns it into dialectical materialism, which is mm-hmm. the tri the tripart of Hume's philosophical system of impressions versus ideas. Right. So so your ideas are informed by your material conditions, which are impressions that you get placed upon you which is what by Hume, material reality. Yeah, which is literally what Hume said. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I thought it was interesting that we had a refutation of Scottish empiricism, right? Of that of that 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 English empiricism. And then we have this German idealism. And then a person who's a great a great philosopher who, like I said, a lot of people thought completed philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um is that my man Ended up like when when Marx created his dialectic, right? When the Marxist dialectic came out, he went back to an almost empirical system. Right. How fascinating is that? That's yeah. That's that's insanely that's insanely cool. And it's I've the, you you helped me arrive to that, so I'm I'm processing that right now. But that's that's it's crazy that. Throughout throughout those ideas and that that time, you know, we were, yeah. I mean, Marx, a, a Hegelian Marx, uh, essentially, who's foundational of dialectical materialism, almost is the spitting image of what David Hume argues. Yeah, which, which um, right. So I was again, I was reading, I was reading Hegel, and I. To to like so, I have to say this about philosophy too, and I I would like to kind of bring this um, you know, back a little back just a little bit to the general philosophy talk is that to me philosophy, especially when it's hard to read, um, it takes a minute to get it, and a lot of times you have to reread it, and that's what's going on with me and Heigl. I had a theory teacher who once told me we had Heigl. Who was assigned? Because I mean, you gotta you gotta read at least a little bit of of Hegel in a class at least before you read Marx. I right. Marx is fun. you can read Marx um, 
you know, uh, all, all day long without reading anyone else. I 100% think yeah. that because he's not, but like you get a little bit more if you read he- Heigl first. So yeah. we read Heigl, we read like three pages of Heigl and this person was like, I don't understand this. And my teacher said the best thing that I've ever heard. And I use this all the time. She said, okay, good. If you understood it, I thought if you understood it the first time you read it, I would think you're crazy. So in, in that Heigl writes in a very, uh, in a very weird way. Uh, a lot of the time, like if you, if you've ever read him, he writes in this, this, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's very abstract, right? So apparently Heigl taught this way too. Heigl was a, a apparently he was a terrible teacher. He was a professor. <laughs> <laughs> he was a professor at the university of Genoa. Right. And, mm. um, apparently his students complained all the time. Because the way that Heigl worked through, well, at least he practiced what he preached, but the way Heigl worked through things was through mm-hmm. a dialectical method in that he went backwards from, from the ending to the question. Mm. And also he apparently had a really thick accent, so that didn't really help out either. So, so Heigl, they said that he would spend like 10 minutes if someone asked him a simple question, he'd spend like 10 minutes thinking about it and then just be like, so the ending of civilization was like, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause I, I, I think I could have, I think I think like that sometimes and maybe it's just like a, um, you know, it's like you, ar- you arrive at a, uh, and maybe that's kind of, that's kind of like how the, my, my, uh, journey, uh, through leftist literature kind of started it was like because i remember several years ago i mean i when you first hear the word capitalism or you first hear late stage capitalism i'm like okay this is late stage capitalism and i'm like okay now i have to go back and ask the questions about how do how do we get here you know like if if this is the if this is uh our our material conditions being what they are this is this is them now now i'm like okay why are they the way they are you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like I'm working backwards, and I feel like I've been doing that. So, um, well, in a way, I relate. <laughs> yeah. What's What's interesting about Hegel is that Hegel actually, the way that he works through history, is, mm-hmm. is a very interesting way to work through history. And I I think, that, and again, like a little biased because I'm a Marxist, so it kind of it almost mm-hmm. necessarily means I'm a Hegelian. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm a Hegelian, but it almost does. So right. the way that Hegel works through history is that. So most people work through history in this, um, we're here now because this, 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 and this happened, right? Whereas Hegel goes, no, we're not here now because this, 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 and this happened. This, 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 and this happened because we're here now. Mm-hmm. So it's a reading backwards of history. So instead of like saying, okay, well, like uh, for, 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 for instance, if you were to make a, a, a critique of the police state, right, which, I mean, we can all do that till the cows come home. But if we were to right. say, hey, uh, the American, the U.S. police are inherently racist because of years and years of this, like, history of racism and, like, the mm-hmm. fact that the police were created because they were were slave captures heigl would say no that's not the correct way of reading history it's not like an end point of history you're constantly moving through contradictions throughout history so 
actually what it is is that you can look at now and go, okay, well, the police were racist or whatever back in the day. Oh, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily inform their racism now. What informs their racism now? It's like, well, you know, you can look through, uh, uh, you know, capital or, 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 or anything like well, that. That's, yeah, that's what I was going to say through our, you know, through the, the protection of capital and their own, and uh, their interests. Yeah. And you can say, well, well, what, uh, you know, why, why is that? Is, is it that the police have always been racist? So they'll always be racist. No, it's that the police were created right to, to be slave catchers because because of what? Because of capital? Because you can you can kind of work through this like um in a, almost in a uh, you right. know you can try and find the contradiction in 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 that right? It's not it's not that it's not that now the police are racist because the police were racist in the past. No, it, it, that that has nothing to do with it. Hegel. The thing about Hegel is that it's it's not necessarily one way or the other, right? So the future informs the past, informs the future. Right, it's a it's a it's a dialectical movement, like we were talking about. It's a, mm-hmm. it's working through the the contradictions of history, and that's the biggest thing about Marx too. So Marx, we get historical materialism through Marx, which is that history necessarily has mm-hmm. been influenced through material conditions. Which spot the fucking lie. I mean, ca- talk about. A man stepping up to the plate and hitting a fucking homer out of the park the first time he gets up to the the big league. Right, right. I mean, we get uh, you know historical materialism that works in this way with dialectical materialism, which is okay. So I, I want to make this distinction as well before we you know kind of move on. Marx dialectical materialism is a method of seeing the world and historical materialism is a method of organizing. So for instance, dialectical materialism is applied throughout history, which is historical materialism, right? So it's not like, I remember, I think the Chapo, one of the Chapo guys was trying to say, it's like a pyramid. You kind of add stuff on top. No, it's not, it's not pyramid. They, they work in tandem together. Right. One is simply a philosophical system of how to see things, and the other is applying that philosophical system throughout history. Oh, okay. So a di- di- Marx's dialectics is dialectical materialism, which is applied throughout history, and therefore we get historical materialism through Marx, through his dialectic. Right. Yeah, so... Um, but yeah, I I uh, I just thought that was again to get back to the the initial point. I just thought that was infinitely fascinating that um, Marx, uh, in the fact that he's trying to break from Hegel, because even though he's like greatly influenced by Hegel, and in, of course, he, like mm-hmm. he, bec- I mean, I, I don't think he would have become a communist if he didn't read Hegel. Um, mm-hmm. But he was greatly influenced, and so was Engels, and so was a lot of people, like like uh, back then that was, and, and even now who are influenced by Hegel. Um, he wants to break from this almost because Hegel is a, Luth- a Lutheran. He wants to break from this. Mi- he calls it. He wants to break. The, he wants to take Hegel's dialectic and demystify it. Is what he says. So. Interestingly enough, he takes this this dialectic, right? That's 
that's like you know mystical in nature or whatever not necessarily but it's it's you know it it seems mystical to marx and then recontextualizes it in almost a human way hmm. so i just found that i just found that uh, a yeah, very no, interesting yeah, that's, that, that's that's really interesting and that's 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 where that's what we talked about earlier when you said you had one of those oh or aha moments you're just like hey wait a minute you know and you it's i i i don't know how to say it other than you're, you're like connecting dots or you're like you're you're just create, connecting ideas uh, across time you know and it, it feels really cool when you do stuff like that yeah it definitely was an aha moment i um mm-hmm. i had one of those but uh so so i guess before we wrap up um you know i just wanted to 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 vent about philosophy for an hour Mm -hmm. um i just wanted to ask you because like i've just been taking the the driver's seat i guess and just kind of like (laughs) explaining to you um what so you said you've read althes a but have you read anything else recently even if it's just even if it's not a book even if it's not theory or philosophy what have you been up to my dude well so what what i've been i've been doing a lot of uh and I, well, I mean, who doesn't do a lot of it? When you do like a lot of soul searching, or, or you do your your own kind of uh, reflection of your own ideas, what I what I've noticed, I've been thinking a lot about. And I, it's funny. And I'm gonna I'm gonna connect something that we mentioned earlier. I'm gonna connect one Q eight four to what I'm about to say. But I I used to think a lot about, uh, and I have always done this just because I'm I'm that type of person. But I've always thought about what my future looks like. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been more consumed and sometimes my ability, it hinders my ability to enjoy what's going on now because one of my anxiety, one of the bad uh, side effects to being an anxious person that I am is you're always worried about what comes next, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I've kind of done and what I've been reading a lot of in ideas um, because I saw 1Q84. It's funny uh, that you mentioned it because I saw 1Q84 like weeks ago and I was like, oh, what is this? This is Murakami. And I looked it up and I was like, wow, everyone says this book is like insane. <laughs> and so, and so I was, um, I was thinking and I was like, okay, so this is like, this is his companion to 1984, or like a, a companion story along with ideas that 1984 generates. And, I, and the more, as I think about it, I've been thinking a lot about like a dystopian, uh the world where there aren't like there aren't any thought leaders there aren't any thinkers in the right places and so it's it, it, it this is where i i tie it into the the spectacle uh the idea of the spectacle when you're watching all of this unfold and you're just like this this is kind of this is just it's pure theater and spectacle and we don't it's it's almost like we are already in a dystopia is I guess what I'm I'm arriving at that point really quick was what I was going to get to, but I'm like, holy shit! And I think about what people thought a dystopian society would look like hundreds of years ago, and I just think about it, and I'm like, there's in every corner of our worlds now, in every corner of our culture, in our private lives, there's there there is a message or there is like a a signifier for us, a symbol to to spend more capital or to basically advertisements like advertising and and it's so much of the corporate world and so much of the 
uh, humanless, soulless part of our society now. Uh, I'm trying not to say society, but I'm going to end up saying it a lot. Um, the worst parts of it are starting to invade our lives. And I'm seeing that now. And I think this is kind of what 1Q84 is about, right? Or at least I, I don't know. I think doesn't she doesn't like the protagonists of the book or whoever uh, he's writing about. Don't they start to notice like some really strange things going on, like in our in just our behaviors? And so like I feel like I'm going on a journey like that right now. And so I'm just like, whoa! Like I, I've, I've been so worried about what the future looks like that like this kind of what what we're, what what the world is right now is the future that I feared or the future mm -hmm. that I fear. And so I had to I came to that that epiphany and it's one of those whoa moments and so i take a step back and i'm like we're so like we're so i, I think what a lot of the um, the apparatus uh of the comp the things the conversations that we have and how they invade our thinking and and how I, I hate capitalism because capitalism is about capitalizing on what we are talking about but what we're talking about what what, what most people talk about is kind of dumb sometimes and it doesn't like protect us as humans at all and so what i keep coming to this conclusion is like i'm like whoa like i've been so concerned about what a dystopian united states that we live in looks like that i didn't even think to realize like this kind of is dystopian you know like it's um and so it, it's it's difficult for me to think i don't think a lot about things that have happened and that's why history has never been my strong suit um, but I, I love applying ideas that people from history have. I love I love thinking about something, and then finding the application of that. That's somebody somebody thought of that already in, in history, like in in our history books. And I discover that person. I discover those ideas, and kind of kind of honestly, kind of how I found about uh, that's how I became a Marxist because I was like, hey, I I don't really think this, and uh, that's that's usually how. You find you kind of that's how your political compass you align with it, um, but that's just kind of been the the journey I've been on is uh, being so concerned about we should we should listen to what these philosophers and these thinkers have said in the past to mm. protect the future, but we haven't even been doing that the last like hundred maybe few decades, and it's already the wheels of dystopia are already spinning, you know, and so like now I'm like. And so now I try to find, I try to uh, align myself with thought leaders that are really important to our time right now, and that's that can be kind of depressing because you're just kind of like, well, I mean, they're there, but they're not they're not in the right places, or you know, they're not the we're not flocking to the right people, and we're all we're all being consumed by this spectacle, the apparatus of you know the the apparatuses of society and stuff like that, and um, yeah. But yeah, that's and that that's all just been from our last podcast episode. That's like that's, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> so, and all of that is just that's, well, that that's just kind of where my that's where my uh, my brain and my ideas and where a lot of my uh, when I when I'm stuck in my own thoughts and thinking about uh, ideas. That's that's usually where it's been right now. But um, but yeah, I really the more i think about it i'm going to convince myself to read it because i mean like everyone else i mean the the book list is just enormous at this point it's like a you can't you don't even want to look at all the things you have to read and you just kind of want to be like uh, i guess i kind of want to read this now but i definitely want to read that because um uh, we have norwegian wood and i i know you told me to kind of get familiar with Minrakami's uh 
um, other works first. So I'll probably start doing that. But also, I really, I, I don't. Maybe somebody told me uh, I do really need to read uh, Moby Dick though, because it's a, um, it's just a good. And maybe at this point in my age, when you're kind of starting to figure out uh, things in life, and you're you're just at that. <laughs> uh you're at you know we're, we're at that coming uh, not coming of age but we're just at that point where you're still trying to f- apply meaning and you're still trying to apply uh happiness to things and 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 your your pursuit of whatever it is you're pursuing in life and somebody told me that you should uh, i told somebody that they're like oh you should read moby dick <laughs> i was like okay <laughs> so was this a was this a person you met in, in real life or was this a person yeah this is somebody over at uh i hang out in old town a lot and there's a guy that uh um, there's a guy that works in the, uh, there's a breaking bad store and there's a guy that works there. That's like super like, uh, uh, not, I don't, I don't want to say he's like a, a philosophy nerd, but like, he's, he's super into like classical literature and, mm-hmm. uh, and the dissection of it. He has his own book club, but they have like an actual in-person book club. And I don't know if I'm going to jump in on that right now. Cause I don't know if I want to be around like that many people at one time, but, um, but yeah, so he was like, "Oh yeah, you should read Moby Dick," and I was like, "Okay, you know, I'll look into that." But like I said, that's another monster of a book to just to just add to the pile. Yeah, I um, I I read Moby Dick last year. Um, I yeah, I yeah, I I mean, I was I was on that Moby Dick train with um, I I, I had it and I started reading it. I think when like uh, Fred read it and then uh, mm-hmm. Leia also read it. Uh, so it was really weird. Like all three of us were kind of reading it at the same time. I think. Right. Well, that's good because you need you you need you need your ideas not like encouraged, but you you kind of need to bounce stuff off of people, which is kind of one of the reasons we're doing this, you know. And it's you need outlets, and so it's it's good that you you're doing that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you you want to kind of be able to read something with somebody, right? Yeah, I uh, and I, I highly rec- yeah I recommend Moby Dick. It's a it's a good book. There's there's like uh, I actually even like the boring parts. Like the, that's the thing I always tell people. I think Moby Dick is a work of art. Um, right. It's a beautiful beautiful novel, but I am reluctant to recommend it. Much like it's kind of funny. I'm reluctant to recommend a lot of the books that I've like really that have really influenced me and that I really love. I, I'm really. I, you know, it's typically the middle of the road mm-hmm. um, or even like the the uh, there's a lot of the ones that I'm like, oh, wow, this is incredible that I am willing to recommend. But Moby Dick and um, Murakami are two like two. Uh, so Murakami is a writer that I'm, I'm reluctant to recommend, um, mm-hmm. even though he's my favorite writer. But Moby Dick is is one that I'm reluctant to recommend, even though I think it's one of the it's one of the greatest. um pieces of art that's ever been created mm-hmm. um, yeah i mean and, and, and I, I do that too sometimes i'm like you know when i when i come across something that i like or something that influenced me i'm kind of scared to recommend it. i'm like i mean yeah i mean I, I like it because of this reason but it's okay if you don't like it because of that reason and you like it for another reason you know it's it's almost like it's tailored to your experience you know yeah to me th- this is the biggest thing about moby dick to me, right, and I'll, I'll kind of get, I'll, I'll talk about Murakami just a little bit as well, but uh, just to kind of like wrap things up, I guess, in a neat little bow. But Moby Dick to me is just like I, I, I'm reluctant to recommend it because it's a big book. It takes a long time to read. Mm-hmm. There are parts that are like really boring, but it, it is a book. It is straight up a book for like philosophy nerds. Like it's there's a lot. Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful beautiful book. It's a beautiful quest. 
And the ending, honestly, too, I'm not going to spoil it at all because I think everyone should experience that ending. But the ending is one of those things where, like, people who watch Disney movies couldn't fucking, like, love that ending. Like, I do. Like, I, this sounds like it sounds pretentious, but it's like the fucking Harry, like, people need, like, good mm-hmm. to triumph over evil and for there to be, like, a clean resolution. But, like, Moby Dick doesn't end like that. Moby Dick ends oh, in yeah. a very beautiful beautiful heartbreaking like like way and you're just like when you finish that book and you close it you just go damn and you just put it on your shelf you read 700 pages and then that was what you were left with it's beautiful it's a beautiful book but like again like i reluctant to recommend it because of that because like that's just something that like kind of gets to me but it won't get to everybody and I mean, I'll, I'll say this about Murakami too. And I was telling you, cause I remember, so I said, you know, someone said post the, the most books that you have of one author. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it is Murakami that I have the most books of. Um, and he's, and he has become my favorite author. I, I mm-hmm. most of his books that I've read, I, I've, I've loved. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm very reluctant to recommend Murakami because Murakami fits in this weird niche category of like, magical postmodern realism it, but like not only that he's super sexual like i tell people all the time i'm like oh really you know yeah i was like listen if you get uncomfortable reading like sex scenes you probably shouldn't read murakami because murakami but it's weird because this is how i feel about them is that murakami is super detached from the sex scenes he's writing in that they almost don't seem sexual like they're hypersexual, almost as sexual as like George R. R. Martin's like explicit uh, sex scenes in, in you know, <laughs> a Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, there's there's quite I'd say in, in the Murakami in, in Murakami novels, there's at least one of those super explicit sex scenes every single novel. But the thing about it is, is that it has this like detachment from reality that kind of ties into the whole thing where like when the main character has sex or whoever, you know, has Mm -hmm. sex within the book, it's like, it's a thing that they do that's highly sexualized, but desexualized at the same time. It's not like a, Oh shit, I'm getting a, you know, a boner or something. Right. Like I'm reading this book. It's like, Oh, this guy's like alienated and he's just like doing this thing. And then afterwards he's like, never going to see this person again or or, or something along those lines. But again people are so surface level that when you recommend people something they're like oh sorry like it i need it i can't deal with that sex scene because he's just too sexual it's like oh i'm sorry that you couldn't like yeah you get past, <laughs> you couldn't get past a three-page fucking yeah, sex scene to to get to the crux of the novel like yeah. to 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 understand the deep existential dread that he's been talking about the rest of the fucking book like right. <laughs> 300 other pages of fucking beautiful existential yeah. dread and magical cats and psychics and shit and mm-hmm. chain smoking and chain drinking and, and characters who feel like they're, you know, alienated out of their mind, but you can't handle him describing ears too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, that I had a big tiff with that, uh, that Dana Schwartz girl or whatever her name was on Twitter. I don't ever see her on the timeline anymore. Thank goodness. But she's like, uh, she kind of made this whole 
personality. Oh, on. yeah, I, I remember that where it just became this thing where like why. I don't know. Maybe she was the champion voice, the championing voice of like, why the fuck is there so much sex and everything? <laughs> yeah, she was, she was the champion voice of uh, we need to cancel the canon, stop reading white male authors, stuff like that. Yeah. But her yeah. thing was, she was like, God, I, you know, I like some Murakami books, but like, he's weirdly fascinated with years. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, it's fine. Like, read the fucking, re, you know, I, I'm sorry that you can't handle four pages of 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 uh of ear description ear descriptions in his fucking books and wh- whereas like wh- the rest of the fucking novel like ends on this like beautiful note and your your whole focus is talking about women's yeah, ears and how he weirdly describes them yeah he's like tarantino in that regard he's an auteur that likes fucking ears yeah exactly <laughs> jesus yeah so i guess that's a that's a good place to wrap up yeah, today. Let's 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 call it there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh all right. So next episode, right, in, in uh two weeks, we will be talking about uh we will have read the communist manifesto. And I'm saying this, I'm willing this into existence right now. <laughs> we will have read the communist manifesto by then and we will discuss it then. So I will we will see you guys later. All right, peace out.